Revelation chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look now and continue in chapter 8. We'll finish chapter 8 today, uh, unless something weird happens. We'll finish chapter 8 today. We've already looked at uh, chapter 8 verses 1 through 5, and now we'll look at chapter 8 verses 6 through um, 13. I don't think we'll get into verse, uh, I mean, chapter 9 today. We, we may, but I don't think so. But it's funny how the Lord lines everything, everything up. So last week, we actually went away from Revelation for a little while, and I spoke on uh, being thankful and things that we can be thankful for and, and, and living that life of thankfulness. And, and this week, uh, I wanted to, I was really struggling going back and forth and thinking, Lord, would you have me to go away from Revelation again? Because I really, after, if you came to that, uh, if you came to the, um, the community service that we had at First Baptist Church, God was doing something there, and what he was doing was he was pushing all the pastors in, in a direction that says that God is sovereign over all things, even the suffering that's going on in the lives of people, and that he is sovereignly commissioning us, and he is calling us to be used by him in order to, to provide comfort, in order to provide care, in order to provide um, grace and, and encouragement to those who are going through suffering, uh, to those who are in a, a, a place of hopelessness or that might be overwhelmed by the, 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 the sins of the world or, or the cares of the world or the burdens of the world. And, and I think that that's what God was trying to draw out of that thing. And, 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 and I had said some things that night that, that even really convicted me. Saying things such as that we can't just talk. We can't just talk. We can't. You know, we, we're very good at filling buildings and, and filling the airways with a bunch of talk, right? Aren't we good at making things sound good? Some of us better than others, but, but we, are, we are so often, we're really good at talking. We're really good at making everybody think things. We're really good at proclaiming what may be good or what may be right, or, yeah, and we get a lot of, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. But then when, when, the, when the moment has passed and when the excitement is gone, th the question is, did you really put your money where your mouth is? And so I said something to the effect of, if you were really changed by God, then it would lead you into places that made you really uncomfortable. Because you would go anywhere that God called you to go, and you would do anything that God called you to do in order to provide for the needs around you and to obey the call of God to meet the needs of the needy and the broken and the desolate. And it wouldn't be that we just surrounded ourselves with people that look just like us, that smell just like us, that walk just like us, that talk just like us. Shame on us for that. I'm guilty and so are you. But that our faith should be such that it would move us to go into the, to the places where the gospel is not welcomed, where it's not taken because of fear, fear of rejection, fear of getting something on you. We all, so many of us, not all, so many of us worship a God of comfort. And so there are people all around us who are hurting and broken and really, you, so many of us think, well, it's going to cost me money. It's going to cost me this. It's going to cost me that. So I can't go, but shame on us. We need to go. And so the Lord 
he, he challenged me, and he made me put my money where my mouth was. And so I didn't get to go to the little fellowship after that but because we had turkeys to deliver. And I want to say right now that I was challenged and I was blessed all in one night, okay? Uh, if this is aimed at anybody, let me aim it right back at me. Because, you know, just because I talk a good game doesn't mean my game is always good, okay? Uh, don't let me stand up here with my cape flying in the wind, okay? Uh, because I need to get out more. I need to go into those places. I, do, I did a lot better job. I used to do a lot better job than I do now. And I, you know what excuse I use? Busyness. That's no excuse. If you can't make time for God's people, then you can't make time, right? And so we thank you so much for helping with the turkey uh, giveaways that we were able to bless lots of people with. And well, we didn't just pass them out at the door, but they came. If you were here, you knew they came in and we got to talk and fellowship with them. We'd come and sit down with them. We'd talk about faith. We'd talk about life right in here. They were sitting right in here. And then we would take them back one at a time or a family at a time. And we'd get to sit them down at a table and figure out, hey, what's going on in your life as much as we could in the little bit of time that we had. We're able to pray over them and ask them uh, to, to, to come and join us if they didn't have a home, you know, to bless them. Is there any other needs? We had some coats. We had... So just a little way at least for us to say, hey, can we help you somehow and, and, and try to plant that seed of the gospel? Well, then, after that was done, we had people signing up too on the way out for Christmas by the well. We've done this for several years now, and it's a ministry to where those in the community, those in the church that are in a rough place, we all go down those roads from time to time. Those who are in a rough place, maybe single moms, single dads who are just having a hard time paying the bills, much less uh, doing Christmas for the children, that you can sign up. And we have that ministry going on right now. You can sign up and we'll help you if you need it to provide Christmas for the children, okay? Now, the crazy thing was is that um, the night that we gave out the Thanksgiving meals, we had more people sign up that night than we had ever had. I think that one night we got over 85 children that needed help for Christmas. Well, it continued on because we actually ended up having a, a fair amount of turkeys left over. I think we had somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40 turkeys left over, something like that. I had some in my car. Dustin put some in the bus. Dustin and, and I think, um, did you go with him? Uh, Dustin and Donnie went. I think Robert uh, might have took some. Several of you took turkeys and delivered them. Well, we had some in my car. Me and Jeremy and Jorge and my three boys and, and Provo and my three boys went out after the service, and we didn't even know where we were going. We were just like, we're just going to go deliver turkeys, right? And so we jump in the car, and uh, we, we just take off. We're like, hey, where, where are some places that you know? Who are some people that you know are in need? Where, where, where should we go? So we just kind of prayed and asked the Lord, where do we go? So we just went to different places, and, and I'll just tell you one of the places that we went to. And uh, it was a blessing to me. Every place I went, I think I got blessed more so than the people. Is that amen? Amen. I think I got more blessed than the people who received the turkey. It was amazing to see that when we... Now, listen, it's already gotten dark, okay? And we're rolling up into people's houses. It's pitch black dark. And you got... And, and of course, everybody piles out of the car whenever you pull up. So you've got four guys, okay, and three kids banging on the door, after, after the lights are out. And you guys and people like looking through the window, you know. Yes, it's not the police, ma'am. And so they open. We go. But they, did not every one of them invite us right into their house? They invited us right in. 
They accepted a sin. Uh, one, one gentleman, and, and uh, Jeremy, I remember we was talking about this. One gentleman, it was, it was crazy because this guy was, was, he was not expecting us. We came right in. He lived in the house alone, and, and we asked him, hey, we got a turkey. Would you be interested in it? We're just wanting to help. Yeah, I guess. The only thing we ask is if we can pray with you. Can we do that? Yeah, yeah, come on in. We go into his house, and, and we stand, and we start to pray, and, and I grab the guy's hand behind me, and he grabs my hand, and, and Titus was over there, and Titus had the circle broken because the gentleman that we were praying for is here, and Titus is way over here. Well, that man goes all the way around, and he reaches down and grabs my little boy's hand. The man that we were ministering to connects the circle and brings unity to the group. Can I ask a question that just taken just hit me in the heart? Do you think it might be a true statement that that man is more welcoming, more encouraging, more united than so many who are in the church today? Another story, that wasn't even the one I was going to share. That one just kind of come out. Another story, the first house we went to was the one I learned so much on. We went into this, this house and um, it was it was a rough house, and um, I'll just say that. And some little boys there, and a lady there, and uh, won't call any names. This is a small community, so we're live, but lots of need, lots of need. You could tell it. And uh, we gave the turkey, and we gave the bag of groceries, and they were so excited. And the little boy was maybe four, and there was another little two-year-old running around acting crazy, and. Uh, we asked, hey, can we pray with you? And uh, she said, oh, yeah, yeah, please. And just almost just started flowing immediately because you could tell there's just a lot of need. And so uh, we just hugged up and we started praying. And she, you could just tell she was so thankful for that prayer. Well, anyway, that little boy was sitting there. And it's hard to tell the story without telling his name. But anyway, it was a Bible character. And, and I looked at him and I said, I said, hey, buddy. I said, you know, the guy in the Bible that's got your name, you know, he did amazing things. And he just, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, he did this and he did this and he did that. And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, you going to do that when you get big? He just, Jeremy, tell him if I'm lying. Provo, you were there. This boy's sitting on a chair, and I'm leaned over to him like this right here, talking to him. He's in that chair literally like this right here. That boy springs up on his feet, spring-loaded, and goes, poof. Like Superman and bam, wraps his arms around my neck and jumped. I bet he jumped two or three foot right into my arms, didn't he? I was like a little Spider-Man. And uh, you talk about melting, melting me. And I grabbed him. He was like squeezed on me tight. And I, I grabbed him and I pulled him back a little bit and I looked him right in the eye and I said, you're going to do great things for God? And I mean, without hesitation, he said, yes, I am. Now, Amen. Let me be perfectly honest with you. If that stops right there, that might just be sin on my part. Because that little boy right there, at least to what I saw, and I only got a glimpse. I know a little bit of the history of some of the family, but he probably doesn't stand much of a chance. He probably doesn't. Unless I or you or somebody goes and kind of gets awkward and says, hey, do you mind if so-and-so comes and hangs out with me and my little boys today? I know he doesn't have a 
father figure, I don't think. He, do you mind if he comes and hangs with us? Guarantee it'd be nope. What are we doing, church? What are we doing? What am I doing? God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Well, believe it or not, this is related to the sermon today. Um, even though we're talking about the trumpet blast of the judgment of God. <laughs> uh, but I believe you'll see how it's related. And I wouldn't have seen how it was related. And, and I hope it's not me reading into the text. You be the judge of it. Be a Berean. But I don't, I don't think so. Um, amazing how God, I, was, I started that whole thing out by saying it's amazing how God does that type of thing. But I want to show you now the judgment of God and, and how God taught me through what happened um, that, that evening of that community service when I went to take those turkeys out to that family. And that's just a little snippet of it. One man gave me money. Um, and I was like, sir, you don't have to. He said, no, but I want to bless you because you've blessed me. It's, it's amazing. But as we all stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word, I want to read uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. And uh, I want to I teach on this section of Scripture. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and therefore and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green, uh, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the living ships were destroyed. Of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpet that the three angels are about to blow. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we have already established, I've tried to establish that uh, in, in the way that I understand Revelation to be teaching and the way it lays, the way John lays it out, the way that Christ has given the information is that the seven trumpets are really a recapitulation or a retelling of the same event of the seven seals. Some would say that they build on top of one another. I don't think that that's the right understanding, but I think that it is a retelling of the same type of uh, judgment or the same uh, instance of judgment, only with a different emphasis and a different perspective. And the difference in perspective and emphasis, and I'm only, I, I, I want to kind of move through this kind of quickly because we've established some of this because we've looked at the seven seals. And I want to show you, though, some implications of what this means for me and you and how it should affect you and I as we live to, as we seek to live out our Christian faith. Because we could just look at this and say, oh, that's interesting information about what's going to come or what's going to happen or the end times or eschatology or whatever. But I want this to effectively minister to me and to you so that it changes something in our lives that we might be more like Christ when we leave than when we came in this morning. Amen? Otherwise, what are we doing here, right? So let's read this and let's understand what God is trying to show us and how that affects us or should affect us in our day-to-day -day lives. 
Well, the first thing we look at here is we transition from the seals and the last judgment of the seals, which destroyed the earth and, and, and inaugurated the new heavens and the new earth and, and ended the judgment of God on, on godless people. We move in now to this different uh, way of describing the same judgment period, the, 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 the seven trumpets that would, that would tell us of the end times of the world. Now, you know uh, from the earlier lessons and the, the, the chapters beforehand that we understand that the kingdom and the tribulation are running along hand in hand and was inaugurated at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we understand, or at least I understand, and there's different understandings of it, I understand that all of these are teaching about a present tribulation that we are actually in right now that is getting significantly worse and, real, and will reach an apex where it, where it finally is realized completely the wrath of God against all creation that do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So this passage had been preached many times with a uh, type of uh, uh, fear-mongering, or, um, and I don't, I don't even mean to say that in a bad way, in a type of warning, okay, that, that the end is coming and all of those who are in opposition to Christ will be judged. And it's been preached that way many times. And I could stand up here and rightfully, I think, preach that now, that if you are in opposition to God, you will receive the wrath of God. You will not stand on that day. And all who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ will pay for it for all of eternity with hellfire and brimstone, weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Hell is coming for those who will not bow the knee to Christ because he cannot and will not be defeated. Amen? But now what I want to do is, is that that's a given in this passage, but I want to say, well, what does that mean for the believers in the room? How, was, how should that significantly affect us and what we understand of how our lives should live out? Because we've been freed from hell and damnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what we understand is, is that this judgment is not our fate, but that, uh, that, that, that salvation is our reality and an eternity awaits us, that eternity with Jesus Christ and the unity with him, and it will, be for, it will be heaven for us forevermore. So the emphasis that we see in chapter 8 and the, 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 the tribulation and the final judgment moves, see in chapter 7, chapter 6 rather, the seals they highlighted the testing of the saints through the tribulation. Do you remember that? It talked about the testing of the saints through the tribulation. It talked about they would need to be sealed in order to make it through. That they would need to be carried in order to make it through. That they would be empowered by God to overcome. Even in death, they would still overcome because they would not compromise what they believed. Well, the trumpets now switch the focus and the emphasis and the perspective from the uh, perseverance of the saints to the judgment of the wicked. So this here is a recapitulation or a retelling of the story from the emphasis and from the perspective of those who will not turn, they will be destroyed. So while that same judgment tests, shapes, molds and perfects many of the saints and sanctifies them, produces, remember what we said, it produces uh, 
perseverance, it produces peace, it produces uh, endurance, which builds character, which ultimately leads to hope. It shows who we really are in Jesus Christ. You see, there is a separating of the wheat from the tares, the goats and the sheep. That's what this, that's what trials do. And if we are right, when John says that he says, my brother and partaker, partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom, if we understand him to be be truthful there, then we understand that this is already a present part of our life, and it's getting uh, worse, and it's getting better at the same time. But we said that those trials should be, should be accepted and even taken joy in because they produce in us revelation of who Jesus Christ is. But now here he switches the, the, the focus to the destruction of the wicked. Now I want to move through this fairly quickly. I don't want to go too quickly because I don't want you to just be like, what? But I want to move kind of quickly because I want to show some of the implications of what this means for present-day believers, okay? So let's move back to chapter uh, 8, verse 6, and let's see. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. This is actually a throwback. We're going to see... Uh, primarily three Old Testament references in these verses that we're looking at now. We're going to see Exodus uh, chapter 7 through about chapter 11. Those are the 10 plagues uh, on Egypt when God was telling Pharaoh to let the people go. Now, not all the plagues are found here in Exodus, I mean, in Revelation chapter 8, but uh, several of them are hinted at here, and several of them are explicitly seemingly stated because they're so parallel. But what we see is, is that the exodus from Egypt by the Israelites at the hand of God and at the declaration of God as he brought plagues, as he brought diseases, as he brought locusts, as he brought the frogs, as he uh, turned the, the, the water bitter and turned the sea to blood, all of these things is a foreshadowing of the end of time when Jesus Christ will come in his wrath and he will pour out wrath wrath and condemnation on all of those who are far from him and do not bow the knee to his kingship. So we see the first uh, plague or the first trumpet here is actually reminiscent of Exodus chapter 9 verses 22 through 25 when great hail is called down upon the earth. Now, I'm not going to go back to Exodus and call out all of those things. You can go back and read it for yourself. Just go to Exodus chapter 7 and read through about uh, chapter 11 and you'll see there's no way you can miss uh, the parallel there in the reference. But what I want to show you here is, is that in the Exodus accounts, all of the plagues and all of the uh, troubles that God brought upon Egypt was not primarily to bring repentance. It was not for the salvation of the people, but it was so that those who were in opposition to God might be justly condemned for their hard-heartedness. You say, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is if you go and read the accounts, every time that Pharaoh relented, God said, oh, no, you don't. But God, and, the, and that is an active term. Many people don't like this because they say, what do you mean? You mean God is the... Listen, I'm not saying that God is the author of sin. All I'm saying is that it was a way that God said, no, I'm going to turn you over to your own lust, your own desires, and you are not going to do this because I have a purpose for you, and that is to demonstrate my just, righteous anger and justice on those who deny me. As we see this, it actually lines up perfectly with Revelation because we see the perspective of chapter 8, verses 6 through, really on through chapter 11, is that the, 
the plagues, the trumpets, the seals, all of these things were not intended primarily to turn the wicked away from their unrighteousness, but it was, just, it was to justify the wrath of God that would be poured out from heaven on all those who would not believe. You see, we think that God is a God of love, so he wouldn't pour out wrath. God is a God of love, so he wouldn't do these things. But God, in demonstrating his love toward us, justly condemns those who will not bow the knee who have come against God's elect and God's people. You see, God is is a God of righteousness, and all of those who refuse to bow the knee will pay the ultimate price. Mixed up in this too, I want to show you this. I will turn back just for this one thing, and then we're going to kind of move on. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it if you you would like. I want to show you a reoccurring theme in the Exodus plagues that I don't know if you picked up on if you've read that before. A reoccurring theme in the Exodus plagues actually reached back and look at well. Revelation chapter 6 brought these out, these truths out of the Exodus accounts. Listen to what it says here as we look at, let's look at the section that we're looking at. Let's look at, I mean, Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 through, say, 26. Listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Listen to this. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Do you see now how Revelation chapter 6 plays into this? And Revelation chapter 7, where it shows the seal of the redeemed, the elect, the, the, the people of God, how he protects them. Now, it's not to say that they wouldn't affect it. If you don't think that the people of Israel would have been affected by that type of a hailstorm in Egypt, where they got most all of their supplies, where they got most all of their food, they would have been affected in much the same way. But it did not destroy them. They were protected by the hand of God from the hand of God. You see the beautiful truth on both sides. We always seemingly want to look at one side. Well, God is love. He's not, he's not angry. He's not wrathful. Well, no, no, no. God's wrathful. He doesn't have any love. No, God is lovingly wrathful. <laughs> I don't even understand it either. I don't need to. God had a purpose, and he was allowing the suffering. He was even hardening hearts. If you don't believe it, go and read it yourself. That he might demonstrate his perfect plan and perfect will from the very beginning, and no one would turn it to the side. Now, we turn back over to Revelation chapter 8. I want to show you uh, something and I, I, there's, you could spend so much time here, but I want to read through these one more time, and I want to kind of show you this theme that comes up, because What we understand, Revelation is a figurative, symbolic book. That's what John tells us in the first chapter, in the very first part of the first chapter. That this is a prophetic book that is is built, 
with symbols and figurative language that it might portray to us a certain storyline that we are to understand, that we are to take in and understand in order that it might change our lives and the way that we live upon the earth right now. So that we could take this and say, oh, that's an event out there. I feel sorry for those people. Or we could say, this is a truth that is at hand and even working itself out as we live out our lives today. And it should effectively minister to us. It should affect our lives and it should change us so that we would live in court in accordance with this truth. And if this is true, how should it affect you? How should you be living your life? Well, let's continue on. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, I don't have a ton of time, so you're going to trust me in this instant and go back and study and test me in the next instant, okay? So Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 25 speaks of the great city of Babylon. It's actually 23 through 26, I think. Speaks of the great city of Babylon, refers to it as a mountain, and says that that mountain will be thrown down. Just, just like this. This is almost taken directly from there. So this great city of Babylon is the mountain that will be thrown down and judged and destroyed in that last time. And in our understanding is already being done so. And we understand that the great city of Babylon is a figurative uh, portrayal of the world system, the world economy, the, 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 this, this, this worldly trust, these trade guilds, the, the money, the, the, the economic trust and the, 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 the idolatry that is so rampant, especially especially in our Western culture. We serve money. We love money. We sacrifice for money. We do everything that we do for money. We work 60 hours a week and neglect our families for money or for stuff, for materials. And if we don't have it, we feel less of a man. If we do have it, we feel great until it breaks and then we're frustrated because we got to fix it. And once that thing wears out, look at this phone. Look how big it is. I'm ashamed to show you. This phone is outdated. It won't hardly work. It's frustrating. I need a new one, but they're like $900. God, forgive me. Do you know what I could do with $900? How many kids I might be? How many people I could feed? How many coats I could buy? How many kids I might be able to have look at me in the face and say, yes, I will serve God? The great city of Babylon represents world powers and, and the, the economic system of the time. And I think of the time burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the living ships were destroyed. Now, ships were the means of commerce in that day, and without ships, there would be no uh, economic trade. Not hardly anything would be moved from city to city, especially when you look at the islands and the port cities and the, the great financial gain that came in on those port cities and all the idolatry. There were so many prostitutes and, and temple prostitution and, and idolatry that was rampant in those days. We've already looked at that, right? You see how it's all tying together? And we looked at how all of these Christians were enticed to, hey, don't think so badly of the times. Compromise a little bit. You can still worship your God, but have a little sex over here with this temple prostitute. It'll be great relations for the trade guilds. It'll be great relations, economically speaking. And you can build partnerships and, and you can make lots of money. And don't you even know that you can bless those around you with lots of money? 
So we disguise our love for money with the excuse that we might can help somebody else. But that's always a lie unless you're truly ravaged by the love of Jesus Christ and you're willing to give it all away. You see, the, the destroying of the ships. Now, now listen, remember that this is, I, we're looking at this from both sides. We're going like this. So we're looking at it one way. This is the judgment of the world. You see, this world trusts in all of these systems. The world trusts in all. One day, guys, one day, and I believe already is, it's going to come down. And let me tell you something. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm really not. But let me tell you something. How dependent is the world coming, becoming on, on high-dollar technology? I don't even know how to get to Spartanburg without my phone. In all seriousness, if I didn't have this, I wouldn't have a business. I send my guys. I'm like, I need you to go look at this job. I need you to go take this tree down. Where is it? It's right here. They plug it in their phones, and the phone tells them what to do. <laughs> Turn here. Yes, sir. If you don't follow, if you don't follow the phone, you're lost. You're making too much out of that, Brennan, am I? Hey, all I'm saying is, is that we're becoming, the world is becoming more and more dependent on the world. We don't need Jesus anymore. We don't need God anymore. We don't need morality anymore. We need convenience. Why do you think abortion has boomed? And the 20th century is the bloodiest century that's ever, ever been. With all the great wars, they don't hold a candle to the convenient murders of all the unborn children. You see, the world powers will fall. And the question is, are you dependent and trusting on the world powers and the world system and the economic uh, 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 powers that be? Or are you dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you find your identity in him? I need to move. Listen to this. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on uh, the, the, the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. If you remember, this goes hand in hand with, with the um, plague where... Moses struck the water, and it became like blood. It became bitter, uh, and they couldn't drink it. The people started to drink it. They started to die. Well, very interesting fact that, that, I, that I learned as I was reading and studying in this part is when it says the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the, on the springs of water. To my surprise, many authors uh, uh, hold that this is actually the, the angelic force or probably more like the demonic force that, that is driving the world system. You say, oh, Lord, you done headed off into Pentecostal land. <laughs> hey, 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 let's rein it back in right here. Let me tell you something right now. If you don't believe in demons, you're crazy. If you don't think that there's a demon behind every crack pipe, you're crazy. If you don't think that there's a demon behind every liquor bottle that is drank to excess and get drunk and sloppy and abusive of children, you're crazy. If you don't think that there is a demon trying to get behind every checkbook, you're crazy. Otherwise, we, don't, we have no interpretive lens for texts like Ephesians chapter 6. For our battle is what? For our war is not? Our what? It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers and principalities. It's against 
It's against outside forces impinging themselves on this world and driving it. That's why the question is, are you driven by the demonic or are you driven by the Christ? And if you're driven by the demonic, then he's always telling you, trust this, trust this, trust this, trust this. You can be happy in this, 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 this. And Christ says, you need me. So the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. There's all type of Old Testament ties that I learned that the, this, old test, this great star seemingly was this demonic force behind the great city of Babylon. And this is the, the declaration that even the demonic realms will pay for their uh, adversity to Jesus Christ. He will not leave any stone unturned, but he will judge every evil thought, every evil deed, every demon. He will judge them, and he will put them into subjection from him. They will fall. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a, on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The crazy and ir ironic thing here is, is that that same power that was pushing them and making them famous and making them rich and drawing them to trust that which is not the Lord, in essence, uh, condemning them in their ways, was the same thing that ended up killing them. You see, you can find temporary relief in temporary means. Sure you can. I'd be lying if I said you could. You know, it would be, it would be really illogical to say that 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 doing drugs doesn't feel good for a little while. Why would people do it if it didn't? This is horrible. No. No, we recognize and understand that there is a temporary relief or peace or high or a temporary um, thrill uh, that comes along with that. But anybody in the room that's ever been on drugs for any period of time or ever been uh, addicted to alcohol realizes and acknowledges very quickly, even if they're still doing it, that the original pleasure was absolutely overrun by the following pain. Because it's all a lie. It's all a lie. Now, if I had time, I could go through my understanding of how how drugs and stuff work, but we don't have time. But this, I, I have a very interesting um, theory on, on all of that, being a former drug user myself. We can't go into it right now, but we, we understand that the same thing that makes you promises and does give temporary excitement and relief, whether it be money. And, it, and you know, I use drugs because that was one of my issues, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be things that seem good. You know, things like family, things like work, things like um, not necessarily bad things, kind of indifferent things like a video game or a TV or movies or sleep, you know, eating, whatever. You know, how many people eat themselves right to death? And food is a good thing. Hit a nerve on that one? Sorry. I'm working on it myself. Most of the time, it's not, it's not apparently evil thing that's kill us. It's the things that we justify in our own minds because we can justify them to other people most of the time. 
and it just ravages us. Well, here it says that those things that you're trusting in, they're going to fall, they're going down. He's talking to those who are unregenerate, and this is a good test. Remember that every judgment, every punishment, every condemnation of the unredeemed, the unregenerate, the unbeliever is also a test for the believer that will set them apart and make them different in this world, that we don't trust the things of this world, but we trust Jesus Christ. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So here we see that the whole economic system is affected by this. So watch the progression here. It's a judgment of the wicked that... the believers have to endure somewhat too. But remember, they're going to be sealed. They'll be okay through it all. But you'll watch. In the first trumpet, he affects what? All the earth and the land, so to speak. In the second, he affects what? The world powers and the seas and commerce. In the third uh, uh, trumpet, he does what? He affects all the waters that are good for drinking. They can't drink them anymore. So the second trumpet is the waters of commerce. The, the third is the waters of nourishment. Uh, Twelve, Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and it affected the light of day. And how, what do we know about the light of day and the light of night? What do we know? What, what would not happen if you didn't have the light of day? Crops don't, do not do very well with no light. We can't grow food. The economic, the commerce is affected in that way too. And, and most every uh, commentator that I read, and I think it is absolutely keeping in line, uh, realizes that this is in answer to the prayers of the saints who are under the altar and is a continuation or a specifying or a revelation of the great famine from chapter 6. That everything you see happening right here is going to cause a great, great famine on the earth. And it's going to cause the earth to be destroyed. And uh, through this, the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be tested. And this is what we see coming out of this. Now, I wanted to save a little bit of time at the end. And I've saved a little bit of time at the end. So we see this, this judgment coming on the unregenerate and the unredeemed in a way that will effectively uh, destroy a lot of them. Now, this is very clear that we've not reached the end destruction, the end judgment yet. We've not reached the final judgment yet, but this is a, uh, an effecting of a lot of the earth, but not all of the earth. There's still more judgment to go. But here what he's doing is he is effectively destroying the commerce, the economic system of the world's powers. And I think this is absolutely telling for us, especially today. Because I believe the greatest challenge and the greatest risk for the church is the money and the trade, and the commerce, and the lifestyle of comfort. If we have it, we feel like we don't need anything else. And if we don't have it, it's the only thing we think we need. Hey, that's just true. Most of us in the room, even I'm not even, I'm not even calling you evil. I'm not. I'm just calling you a working man. Most of us, and, and, and listen, listen, I'm not saying it's bad to go work. I'm not even saying it's necessarily bad to be rich. Although it's, you make a case for that. But everybody in the room is rich compared to somebody. I'm not, I'm not even talking about any of that. I'm talking about our priorities. 
I'm talking about how we use the money that we have. I'm talking about the time that we spend. I'm talking about the, the emotional connection and investment that we have into the people around us that don't have. And I'm not talking about just throwing money at problems either. I've been convicted on this. You know, I think we do okay giving, not bragging at all. I give what I feel like God calls me to give. I'm comfortable with what I give. I'm not convicted about it. And that's not bragging. That's just where I am. But I am convicted about other things that I don't give, such as time, emotional involvement, compassion, mercy, involvement, engagement. I don't give up my pride many times. I don't give up my, my image. My image. I think, well, I think way too much of what other people think. I do. Do you? Who said amen? That's messed up, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, brother. No, no, I'm just kidding. I know you mean about you. I'm just kidding. But it's true, isn't it? It's true. It's true. Me too. I, and my, my question, okay, so let's read the last verse, and then let's make good application of it. We're going we're gonna to wind it down. We'll be done right at 12. Praise the Lord. Check this out. This is a very, very telling verse right here. Very, very telling verse. Listen to this, verse 13. I didn't get this at first, but then the Lord kind of revealed to me. Listen to this. Verse 13. After these four trumpets were blown and this judgment was poured out, it's a partial judgment that, that mainly affected the economic system of the day and will bring down the false gods and the false idols, okay? So it's judgment on the wicked for trusting in all these things. And doesn't that line up with everything that we've read so far about idolatry and temple worship and compromise? Doesn't that line right up? Well, listen to what he says in verse 13. Then I looked... And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So this eagle, now what did we say about the eagle? Do you remember when we were looking at the, uh, the living creatures, when we were looking at the tabernacle, when we were looking at the trials? Does anybody remember what we said about the eagle? What is the eagle really good at? Seeing. It flies overhead, and it has great perspective and can see everything, right? And this is that symbolic here. Basically, what God is saying is, is that I am bringing down the economic system of the world, which really represents all the idolatry and the selfish, lust-driven culture that we live in. I'm bringing all of that down, and I will be able to see exactly who my people are. I'll be able to see. Like, like we all justified, and, and I can't look at you and say, you trust in your money too much. Like, I don't know how much you give. I don't know why you give. I don't know your intent, your motive. I, I, don't, I don't know any of that. So it's really hard. It's really easy for you to fool me. I'm like, you might slide 100 out so I can see it and pull it in the plate, and I'm like, praise the Lord. You know? But you might have just been doing that, so I think much of you. That's pride and arrogance, and it will be paid for. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, you see how we got it all backwards. And so I believe what God is saying is that I see everything. I don't just see the outward appearance. 
I see everything. How might see somebody walk right by the offering plate and not drop a dime in, and as a judgmental prick, I might say, well, pfft. That, might, that guy might have got fired two weeks ago, and he didn't have a dime to his name, but he wanted to come through so at least he could bless somebody with a hug. And you know, God looks at that, and he just smiles. And he looks at me, and he goes, you just think you know it all. So I have no idea. I can't judge. I can't. I don't know. But I know my heart. I know my I can work on me. I can work on me. I know what I'm doing, why I'm doing, you know. And you can work on you. God knows it. God's seeing it. And, and he's going to pay. He is going to pour out wrath on the unrighteous. We don't have to worry about that. He's going to do that. The only thing you've got to worry about is, do you truly know the king? Or are you just playing games? Are you trusting in the idols of the world? Do you get all of your identity from success or fame or fortune or who likes you and who doesn't or whatever? Do you get all of your identity in that? Then you've got to worry about this because you might not be a true child of God. And all that aren't true children of God, they're going to experience nothing but wrath in the end. Do you truly love God? And if you truly are trusting in God and loving God, then although all of that stuff will be ripped from you one day, and I promise it will, whether it happens in this life in a physical way and this works itself out like that, or whether you're laying on your deathbed at 96 years old and there's not a dollar that can save you, I promise you it all will fail. I promise you it will all fail. All of your money. I ain't never known anybody to be saved by a dollar or a million. In that last breath. In the last breath, it won't matter. Some of you that are getting close, you know what I mean better than I do. So, what will you choose in these last days? How will you live your life, people of God? How will you live your life? Because the truth is, is that there is famine already happening all over the globe. There's famine happening in our own backyard. There is famine, spiritual famine, if nothing else. Man, I tell you what, guys. I, I mean, I'm more convinced and convicted today than I've ever been. I don't know what I'm doing here sometimes. Then I get glimmers of hope. I just want to be used by God. But I just want to see you used by God. I don't know what I'm doing here if I just say a bunch of stuff on Sunday mornings and it doesn't effectively minister to you and I see it in the community. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what you're doing. What are we doing? Can I just be honest with you for a second? Like, are we really? And I know we're doing some. But are we, I mean, are we really believe in this we really believe that because what this if, if our understanding if my interpretation of revelation is right and that we're already in the tribulation and that we already with john are partakers of the tribulation and this is already happening this is already happening and it's being unfolded right here before our very eyes and idolatry is rampant and destruction is rampant and 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 people are trusting in something that won't save them and they're going to die and they're going to go to hell and they're going to perish and they're going to pay for it for all of eternity why don't we go? What are me and you going to do? What are we going to do? That little boy, he's not three miles from here. Who is going to go and grab that little boy every day, every other day, whatever they can, look him in the eye and say, God loves you, boy. 
Who's going to grab their own kids? Got to start at home. Who's going to grab their wife? Lord, forgive me. Look her right in the eye and say, I love you, but God loves you more. Who's going to give every dime in their pocket because they see a single mom who has nothing? Who's going to pay for those who can't pay for themselves? Who's going to give up their image to go into the backwoods of Landrum and Spartanburg and wherever else to go into a house? Listen, I've already talked to my wife about this. We've got a lot of plans, but we need to get some of them going, don't we? I think I want to just start going and inviting myself into people's houses. That's what Jesus did. Let's just get, get straight weird. I am. I am. And the next month, you ask me if I did it. I'm going to somebody's house with four pizzas. And I'll be like, let's eat. And I'm just going to love them. And they might not tell me, you can't come in. But I'll go next door. I don't know. I really don't even know what to do. All I know is we got to do something. And there's so many kids out there. There's so many women out there. Man, there's so, man, I'll tell you, I'm looking at the biblical womanhood class this morning. We've got some really, really strong women in this church. So thoroughly impressed. And, and I am more confident now in our church than I've been for a long time. Because I think that we've got some really, really powerful, godly women in the church that's just been waiting to be empowered. And I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to do that. And as we see men become empowered to be men of God, and we see women to be empowered to be women of God, and these two people of God come together as one flesh, and you see the, the, the working of the kingdom of God into the world, man, you're talking about the physical needs of the people getting met. You're talking about the spiritual needs of the people getting met. You're talking about the emotional needs of the people getting met. And all of these children and all of these families that are broken and without hope will finally be put back together and with hope. And if you don't believe me, you ask Donnie Dunaway as he told me about his Thanksgiving. And he told me that he spent Thanksgiving maybe for the first time ever with his mom, his son, and his baby sister. We're talking about a man who has been in trouble with the law for years. Years. But God set him free. I have a children's storybook Bible that I like to read with my boys a lot of the times, my younger ones. And it has this saying in there, and I just love it. It says, the God that makes, uh, makes all the... How does it say it? It says... All the bad things to come untrue. All the, all the sickness to come untrue. It says, it, it says it's something like that. But that's, see, that's what you, see, Jesus is effectively ministering to the world through his people. Do you remember the, the throne room and how the elders were around and, and they radiated out to the, the living creatures and all of creation was effectively ministered to by the ambassadors of Christ? I don't know. I guess just looking at all the, you know, I'm, man, we're deep in Revelation now. And I've been looking at a lot of judgment for a long time. And I guess, you know, I could be like, be warned, you'll go to hell, you know. 
But I think you already know that. I think, I think we should look at this and be like, there's a lot of people going to hell. There's a lot of people who are enduring the judgment of God. There's a lot of people who are being ravaged by famine and nakedness and sickness. And I just don't, I don't want that on my conscience. If there's a few minute, extra minutes that I could go over and just sit and pray with a family, if there's a few, extra, uh, a few extra dollars that I could go buy a meal and just take it by, and you ain't got to go in and eat with them, but you could go by and say, hey, look, I just wanted to bless you with a meal tonight. I don't know what. I don't know. But let's just be used by God to make that come untrue. Even if you just affected one person, one person in your family, Heck, we don't have to go to somebody we don't know. Let's go to the ones we do know first. A lot of you can't stand your mom or your dad or your cousin or your brother or your brother-in-law. Well, how about spending all that energy that you despise him with or you despise her with, spend all that energy in prayer, go buy some food, and go sit down and just forget all of the stuff that they've done against you. It ain't about you. Let's pray. Let's stand to our feet. Just do something. Just do something. There's a million and a half different ways that we can share the love of Christ. What if we did it? What if we did it? Or what if we just did it more? We need to do it more. Amen? Amen. Come back with some cool stories next week of some things that you did this week that was just weird. All right? I want to open it up now to a, for a time of uh, response. and You know, maybe you're in that place of hurting and desperation. And maybe the people of God haven't really been there for you like they should. And I'll admit it, you know, I get busy. I, I, hey, this, this sermon hit me right in the mouth first because it was closer to mine when it came out. I'll go ahead and admit that and, and, and ask forgiveness. I'm sorry because I think some of you have probably been going through some stuff and I ain't been able to be there, and I wish I could be there for every single one of you. And I know in reality that's not possible, but I could do a better job. So pray for me as I pray for you. And if you, you want to be used by God and you just don't know how, let's pray together that he would, that he would show us how. Because you know there's opportunities all around you. We're just blind to it. Well, let's don't be blind to it anymore. Let's, let's, let's open up our eyes. Let's see the hurt and the devastation around us. And let's reach out and grab somebody and say, I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you. Come, the, the front is open for response, and I'll be up here to pray with you, or there'll be a bunch of other people that'll be willing to pray for you too. Let's go. Let's go.